All right, so one of the most anxiety, fear-ridden nights of my life happened on May the 17th, 2016. My wife was pregnant for the second time and was due any day at this point, and she was going to give birth at a birthing clinic about 35 minutes up the road with a certified nurse midwife, and one of the things that midwife told us to do is after each meal, we were to count the number of times our child kicked. And this was a thing that brought us joy because each, after each meal, as that child received the nutrients it needed from his mother, he entered a time of activity, and I greatly enjoyed it. Amy might have been getting a little tired of the constant kicks inside her body, but it was a time of joy, at least for me. But on May the 17th, something had gone horribly wrong. After eating her evening meal, our child made no movements at all. We did some quick reading and saw that sometimes the baby is just sleeping and, and you have to stimulate it to wake it up. Uh, maybe you listen to some music on headphones, the baby needs to hear it. Uh, or maybe you drink a cold glass of water. I mean, goodness knows if someone threw a cold glass of water on me, I'd wake up and start kicking around. And so we tried these things, but the baby still made no movement. And one hour soon turned into two hours, and there was no movement. And becoming increasingly worried, we called the nurse at the birthing center, and she told us we need to come in immediately. So Amy and I called a family member to come and stay with Aiden while we went off and made an anxious, fearful, and sorrowful 35-minute drive up to the birthing center. When we arrived there, we were quickly ushered into the back, and the nurse put on the little sonogram machine, and I have never heard so sweet a sound as the sound of my son's heartbeat filling that room that evening. We drove back home freed from that weight of the anxiety, rejoicing that it had all just been a false alarm. And a few hours later, we drove back to the birth center and welcomed my son into the world just before dawn on May the 18th. It turns out that some children just conserve their strength before birth. And Owen had been playing possum on us causing his parents much anxiety and fear. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 24 today, so go ahead and start turning there. Now, if you're here on Wednesday night, you know that Brandon started this section on Matthew 24, and it's a section transitioning from this time of contention where the leaders of the Israeli church were constantly confronting God, and it turned into a time when God sat down and began a time of, of personal teaching, prolonged teaching with the disciples. And specifically teaching them about the end of this age and the coming of the Messianic kingdom. The end of this age and the tribulation that comes before Christ's millennial kingdom, it's a difficult subject, and it's one that fills many people with anxiety, fear, and dread, the same way that I felt anxiety, fear, and dread on that drive up to uh, the birthing center. And I know some people who, they come to these passages, and they, they come to them like a man going to see a fortune teller. They obsess over prophetic messages, not to learn the truths that God has put in them so we can learn more about his divine nature and his will for humanity, but they come because they think they can gain some personal insight for their own personal future. And it's easy to fall into the sin of reading 
your own wants and desires into prophetic messages. Uh, in fact, the disciples kind of had this issue too, didn't they? If you're here on Wednesday night, you might remember how Brandon taught us that the disciples had some very strong expectations for Christ's coming kingdom. Uh, did, did they think Christ's coming kingdom was going to come pretty quick, or did they think it was still way distant off in the future? Who remembers? Nahum, you moved your hat. I'm going to count that as a raised hand. What do you think? They thought it was going to be very soon, yes. They had an expectation that Jesus was going to be quickly establishing his kingdom to the point that you may remember a couple chapters back, Jesus tells them, I'm going to Jerusalem to die. And what did James and John do? The sons of Zebedee. They asked their mom to do something. Do you all remember what it was? They hear that Jesus says, I'm going to die. What do you think, Taylor? Yeah, yeah. Jesus says, I'm going to die. And James and John's mom comes up and says, okay, I understand that, but can you make in your kingdom my son sit one on your left hand and one at your right hand? Like they, they were so blinded by their expectations of what was coming that they completely ignored the fact that God literally said, I'm going to die when I get there. And when Jesus rode into Jerusalem, the disciples were at the front of the crowd shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The disciples had it firmly in their minds that the end of the current age was here and that the age of Messiah's kingdom was about to begin. But Jesus sits down with the disciples and patiently explains to them the things that have to happen before the end comes. And who here remembers or can look at Matthew 24 verses 6 through 12 and tell me what things Jesus said had to come first? Raise your hand. What's one of the things? Yeah, William. Wars and rumors of wars, yes. What else? If you're uncertain, Matthew 24, verses 6 through 12, you can find them. Yes, Liberty. Natural disasters. There are going to be famines and earthquakes. What else? Yes. Yeah, nations would rise against nation. Kingdom would rise against kingdom. Anything else that you'll see there? Go ahead, Taylor. Yeah, we're going to see false prophets and false claims of Christ. And did you have one more, Nahum, or was that yours? William, you got one more? Tribulations and persecutions. Tribulations and persecutions, yes. These were the things that Christ proclaimed were going to come before we ever got to the tribulation. And when I was younger, I came to this passage, and I missed the point completely. Like, absolutely. I, I thought this was you saying, this is the sign that the end has come. And as Brandon went over on Wednesday, that's not the sign that the end has come. That's just a sign that the end is near. So when I heard about the famines and the earthquakes and the floods and temperature changes around the world and, and wars going on in different parts, I, I was filled with anxiety from time to time because I'm like, whoa, wait, 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 this is it. God, God's coming. It's got to be any day now. And it was only after I grew in my understanding of the Bible that I realized Jesus was telling them, these, these are just the beginnings. Like, when you see these signs— we're not there yet. The end is, is still off. Uh, when the end does come, it's going to be a day like any other day. Uh, in fact, in verses 37 through 39 of Matthew 24, Jesus tells them that the coming of the Son of Man is, is going to be exactly like the days of Noah. There's going to be people getting married and giving in marriage, and, and right up until the day when God shut the door of the ark, no one had any idea that it was coming save for Noah. Which brings us to our passage for tonight. 
having established last week the things that are not the signs of the end of the age, but are merely the beginning birth pains that come before the end, Jesus now identifies the sign that indicates we have officially reached the end. That once you see this thing, this is it. There's no longer any doubt. So let's go ahead and read our passage for today. This is going to be Matthew chapter 24, verses 15 to 28. Jesus says, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Whoever is on the housetop must not go down to get the things out that are in his house. And whoever is in the field must not turn back to get his garment. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. But pray that your flight will not be in the winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be a great tribulation such as not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will be. And unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, behold, here's the Christ, or there he is, do not believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders, so as to deceive, so as to deceive, if possible, even the elect. Behold, I have told you in advance. Therefore, if, I, if they say to you, behold, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. Or behold, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe them. For just as lightning comes from the east and appears even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures, vultures will gather. So I've titled my lesson today, The End is Here. Uh-oh. There it goes. It was just sleeping. Part one. The End is Here, part one. Uh, yes, unfortunately, we're not going to make it through this passage this morning. In fact, we're not going to make it all the way through verse one this morning. <laughs> but I, I think that you're well used to this pace. I, I think I know your, your main teacher, so I, I'm pretty sure y'all can handle us going over just one verse our central theme this morning is that Jesus is king over human history. Jesus is king over human history. We're going to be covering a lot of prophecy, and some of it might be a little difficult to understand. Though I'm certainly going to do my best to explain it, but as we go through it, if your head starts to spin at any point, and you start to be overwhelmed by this very rapid overview of prophetic messages, take a breath. I want you to remember our theme. God is in control of human history. The reason we're not going to make it through this passage this morning is found at the end of verse 15. I want you to notice that Matthew, guided by the Holy Spirit, stops quoting Jesus' discourse. So Jesus is in the middle of teaching, and Matthew pauses his recording of it and makes a specific aside to the reader. He says, let the reader understand. And he wrote this because Jesus had just made an extremely powerful reference, one that declared himself, Jesus, as the Messiah, and one that promised the fulfillment of prophecy. And Matthew wanted to make sure that the Jewish audience absolutely understood the full weight of what Jesus said. In verse 15, Jesus said, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, and then Matthew makes it aside, and Jesus continues and finishes the thought, run. When you see this happen, run for the hills. Now, you and I, as Gentiles, living in America some 2,000 years after Jesus, 
we're at a disadvantage for understanding the full weight of what is meant to see the abomination of desolation. But to a Jewish reader, they would have seen this phrase, abomination of desolation, and understood how this sign would have been so utterly unmistakable to whoever sees it. So today we're going to answer three questions about the abomination of desolation, because I I imagine there's many people here this morning, this might be the first time you've heard this phrase, or maybe you've heard this phrase before, but you only have a glancing knowledge about what it even means. So we need to answer three questions about what this is. And this is going to be point one of our outline. The first thing we're going to do is we're going to answer what is the abomination of desolation. And to answer that, we're going to need to turn to Daniel chapter 11. So go ahead, take your Bibles, move way back into the Old Testament to Daniel chapter 11. Now most of us are pretty familiar with Daniel. Like if I say, name something from the life of Daniel, what are you going to say? What? I, I, know, I know everyone knows something from youth about Daniel. Matt, lion's den, sure. Sure, everyone knows about Daniel and the lion's den. It's like one of the first Sunday school lessons we hear. And maybe the second one, maybe not the second one, but one of the early ones we also hear is the writing on the wall, where Jesus's, or God's hand appears and writes down uh, many, many, uh, and I forget the rest. Uh, but the point is he weighs the king and he finds him wanting. We know these two stories quite well. But there's a lot we, we often don't get into with Daniel. So I want you all to be familiar with what's going on here. Daniel, as a young man, and by young I mean like there's probably people in this room who are older than Daniel when he was taken captive. Daniel's a young man taken captive into the uh, Babylonian Empire. And yet despite being probably younger than some of you in this room, Daniel sets in his heart that he is going to honor God in everything he does. And God blesses Daniel for this faithfulness. And Daniel lives his entire life serving about four different kings of this empire. He serves Babylonian, the Medes, and the Persians, and he never makes it back to Israel. His entire life, he lives in captivity. And while other people do leave and go back to Israel, and he sees them go, Daniel himself never leaves this servitude. So we come to this passage in Daniel 11, and he's probably in his late 80s at this point maybe even early 90s. And God sends an angel to Daniel to reveal to him what's going to happen in the history of the nations surrounding Israel for the next 400 years. And this level of information given in these chapters is is mind-staggering. Like people today, they look at this and go, there's no way this was written. Like this was way too specific. There's no way this was written before the events happened. And so they say that it must have, it literally must have had been written, I don't know, on, on, on a Tuesday, and the very next day, we took it and we threw it in the, in the area where the Dead Sea Scrolls was found. Like, that, that's the best they can come up with. It makes no sense that that would have happened, but they say it had to have been written, like, the day before it was sealed up in this cave. And then we open the cave, we find the Dead Sea Scrolls, and there's this copy of Daniel. Makes no sense whatsoever, but that's the best they can come up with. But as Christians, we know we can fully trust these words as Daniel are being written when the Bible says they were written because Jesus is king over human history. And it is no, no big feat for him to say, oh yeah, I know what's going to happen. Let me tell you about it. Because Jesus is the one who ascribes when they're going to happen. So let's read Daniel chapter 11. We're going to start in verse 29. Daniel 11 verse 29, the word of the Lord says, at the appointed time, 
He sh- and this is the middle of prophecy, so we'll, we'll talk about it in a second, but I, we're kind of starting in the middle of things. So, so bear with me. At the appointed time, he shall return and come into the south, but it shall not be this time as it was before. For the ships of Kittim will come against him, and he shall be afraid and withdraw, and shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the Holy Covenant. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the Holy Covenant. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress, and he shall take away the regular burnt offering, and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolation. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. So I want you to notice that verse 29, Daniel chapter 11, it starts with this phrase, at the appointed time. Though this king that we're reading about in this section surely thought he was acting based on his own desires and for his own glorification, God reveals that this king actually moves because God had appointed it as the appropriate time for him to move. This king, by the way, is a king called Antiochus IV. And unfortunately, I don't think Ian's here, so I don't know the correct way to say this. You're just going to have to live with my, uh, my southern way of talking today. Antiochus IV He's a king who proclaimed himself to be Zeus. And he's the first king who gave himself what was called a title of divinity. It was a self-appointed title, and he named himself Epiphanes, which means God manifested. So if you want to leave a little space under this first question, what is the abomination of desolation? We're going to go ahead and answer the second question first. And the second question is, who commits the abomination of desolation? And right there, uh, you can write in who commits the abomination of desolation. I messed up my slide over. That's okay. The answer is Antiochus IV. Antiochus IV is the one who commits the abomination of desolation. At the appointed time, this passage is telling us that God moved this self-proclaimed deity to go and attack the king of the south, that is, the king of Egypt. Because he did this once before. It was a great victory. And he says, I'm going to do it again. So he goes down there to attack the king of the south, the king of Egypt, but the ships of Ketem show up. This is the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire, together with the Egyptian army, is enough to dissuade him from going through with his attack. He gets scared, and he goes off. And in his wounded pride, in his anger, he decides to unleash his fury on the holy people chosen by God. And this, in verse 31, it says that he profanes the temple— he stops a regular burnt offering, and in its place sets up the abomination that makes desolation. Now, historically, we know that this is a reference to when he sets up an altar to Zeus outside God's temple. And he commanded that a pig be offered on this altar he set up on the 25th of each month by the Jewish people in honor of his birthday. And remember, who does he say Zeus is? We went over this like a minute ago. He's, he, yeah himself. He says, I'm Zeus. So he goes to the temple of God, and he sets up an altar to himself. And he says, you Jewish people, every 25th day of the month, because it's my birthday, or that's the day my birthday lands on, you have to offer a pig as a sacrifice and worship me. And he used the promise of great rewards to seduce and flatter many Jewish people into buying into this religion. He said, hey, If you forsake God and instead worship me and do this willingly, I'm going to give you stuff. And many people actually turned away from God 
they come into God's temple. They offer a sacrifice not to God, but to this man. They took the honor and glorification that belonged to God, and in his very house of worship fell down and worshiped an usurper. So what is the abomination of desolation? It's already up there. It's when a man goes into God's temple and gets the people to worship him rather than worshiping God. So we know what the abomination of desolation is. We know who committed it. So now there's really just one question left we need to answer, and that is, why is it so significant that Jesus is bringing this up in Matthew chapter 24? Like, and leave some space here between two and three. We're going to come back to question two. You'll see in a little bit. But if Jesus is bringing this event up, and it seems like it's an event that was prophesied about and has already been completed, what's the point of Jesus bringing this up? Well, to answer what the significance of Jesus referencing the abomination of desolation, we need to flip back in your Bible just one page. We're going to look at Daniel chapter 9. And we're going to read a passage that starts in verse 24 of Daniel chapter 9. And I need you to prepare yourselves a little bit here, okay? We're going to be spending a lot of time going over a very complicated prophecy that involves a lot of math. Weird math, okay? And and this isn't like one of these, uh, gosh, I I don't know if y'all saw this movie called, um, it wasn't Left Behind, but it was one like it. It came out in the year 1999. These people thought they had read, decoded the message in the Bible and proved that Jesus was coming at midnight of January first 20,000, and they released a movie proving this. Uh, (laughs) And it was was such weird math. That's not the weird math I'm talking about. When I say it's going to go over weird math, I mean it's math that doesn't make sense to us until we understand the Hebrew's way of thinking. Uh, So so try and pay attention. Try to understand what Jesus is understanding. We're going to go through this step by step. And Daniel chapter 9, Daniel is an old man, again, probably in his 80s, is reading from the prophet Jeremiah, and he sees that God promised he would have Israel in captivity one year for each year they failed to observe the Sabbath year of rest. Does everyone remember what the Sabbath year of rest was? It's in Leviticus. What the Sabbath year of rest was, was every seven years, the people of Israel were supposed to trust in God so completely that they performed no work in their fields that year. It was supposed to be an entire year where everyone took a break. And they trusted in God. And God and his provision, even though they didn't tend the fields, they didn't weed them, they didn't plant them, God caused growth in those fields such that they had everything they needed. And it was never once observed. Never once did the nation of Israel trust God fully enough to not do the things they did every single year. And so God says, because you failed to obey me over these past 70 times you should have, taken a year of rest, and fell to, I'm going to have you serve one year of captivity. And so Daniel sees this and goes, wait, that means uh, we're going to be in captivity for seven years. Well, we've been in captivity for almost 70 years. That means it's almost over. And so Daniel, in his act of humility and contrition, he puts on sackcloth, and he gets in ashes, and he lays himself prostrate before God, and he says, God, you are righteous, and I am a sinner, and all Israel with me were sinners. We did not obey you. Our punishment is right. And in response to Daniel's prayer, God sends the angel Gabriel to Daniel, and he tells him, this time not about what's going to happen in world history, but exactly what's going to happen in Hebrews' history. So reading from Daniel chapter 9, verse 24, Gabriel gives this message 
from God to Daniel. He says, Seventy weeks have been determined for your people and for your holy city to finish, trans- uh, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make an atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the holy of holies. So you are to know and have insight that from the going out of a word to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be restored and rebuilt with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Then, after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing, and the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end will come with a flood. Even to the end there will be war, desolations are decreed. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week, but in the middle of the week he will make sacrifice and grain, or, but in the middle of the week, he'll make sacrifice and grain offerings cease. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction. One that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. Everyone, okay, we good? Ready to go on to the next part of the, no, okay, no, look, this is a hard passage, okay, guys? <laughs> uh, if you didn't follow that, don't worry. When God gave Daniel a previous message, like uh, Daniel chapter 8, he gives Daniel this message. Daniel under- doesn't understand it. God sends Gabriel. Daniel still doesn't understand it. Like, the explanation God gives him is so ununderstandable to Daniel that he's filled with anxiety and a weight about it that the Bible tells us, I think it's Daniel 8:27. Don't hold me to that, but I'm pretty sure that's where it is. The Bible tells us that Daniel was literally laid out in his bed for several days because of the weight of not understanding this. And even though he didn't ever get to understand it, the Bible tells us he had to get up and go about the king's business. But even then, we're told that he was filled with dread because there was no one who could help him understand it. However, since then, good news, God has equipped many men to write sound doctrine to finish out the rest of the Bible to give us understanding to these passages. And God has raised up even more men who have written trustworthy commentaries that we can reference to further understand it. So unlike Daniel, we don't have to do this alone. God has given us people who can help us. And we're going to take our time to fully understand this prophecy that Jesus is referencing in Matthew 24 and understand why Jesus is referencing it at all. So in Daniel 9 verse 24, God tells Daniel about a period of time that he has determined that consists of 70 weeks or 77s. And this 70-week reference is the second hurdle you and I as Gentiles have to deal with. Like, the readers of Daniel and Daniel himself would have understood what God was saying when he said 70 weeks. Uh, But we don't think the way they thought at the time. As modern people who use the decimal system, what number does all our math and counting revolve around? Any math people in here? The decimal system revolves around the number, did I see a hand up? Nope. Take a guess. Not one. Give me nine more. Ten. ten. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> it revolves around the number ten. I mean, think about it. When you're first taught to, re- to, to do math, how many people remember the ones column and the tens column and the hundred columns? You all have to do that with the little, little square block things. Yes? Yeah, okay, yeah. So you remember, you're taught to think, okay, how many hundreds do you have? I have two hundreds. How many tens do you have? I have five tens. How many nines do you have? Or how many ones do you have? I have nine. So that's 259. That's how we're taught to think. And then we're told, okay, now add one more to the one column. 
well, I have 10 ones now. Well, that means I have to take those ones and put one in the 10 column. So now I have 200, six tens, and zero ones. So this is, our mind revolves around the number 10 in everything we do in math. The Hebrews, however, had their numbering system based on the number seven. There were seven days in the week. There were seven, every seven years, they were to have a year of Sabbath rest. Every seventh year of rest, they were to have, it was to be followed by a year of Jubilee. In fact, when describing seven years, or excuse me, in fact, describing seven years as a week was a description the Israelites were already familiar with. When God instructs the Israelites how often they're to celebrate this year of Jubilee, he describes it this way in Leviticus 25, verse 8. He says, you shall count seven weeks of years. So there, there we are going to seven weeks. That is to mean seven years. So you're, you're to count seven weeks of years, 49 years, so seven times seven, so that the time of the seven weeks of years shall give you 49 years. Like, we hear that, at, I got to read like five times before I start to understand. But the long and short is that one week, seven years. That's, that's how they group this together. It wasn't every time, but God certainly used this sort of language as groups of sevens. So Daniel, as well as the Jewish readers, that Matthew was writing to would have fully understood that God was not speaking about literal weeks when he talks about these 70 weeks. He's talking about a 70 groups of seven years. And altogether, when you take 70 times seven, we're talking about a 490-year time period when using the Hebrew calendar. So is everyone still with me? How many, how many people have I lost? I kind of lost myself. Okay, okay, it's okay. It's okay. We're <laughs> You can come talk to me afterwards, and we can explain this some more. But just keep in mind, we're going to be talking about 70 weeks, and it's really talking about one week is seven years, so we're talking about 490 years that's going to happen in Israel's history. History, or future, excuse me. So during these 70 weeks, this 490-year time span, God decrees that he's going to accomplish six things. Six things God said he was accomplished. And this is right at the beginning of the prophecy. He said, I have declared 70 weeks. And during that 70 weeks, I'm going to, I, God, is going to bring an end to Israel's transgression. God is going to bring an end of sin for all time. God is going to make atonement for iniquity. God is going to establish an everlasting righteousness. God is going to bring a completion to all prophecies. And God will anoint the Holy of Holies. Or, or this might also be translated as God will anoint the most holy. Now, out of the six things on this list, go ahead and look at this real quick. How many of these things have actually been completed today in our time period? I, I want everyone, take, take a minute to look at this, and then hold up on your hand the number of fingers you think of the things that's been completed on this list. What do you all think? I see some zeros. Who else has another guess? God will bring an end to Israel's transgression. He's going to make an end to sin of all time. He'll make atonement for iniquity. He'll establish an everlasting righteousness. He'll bring a completion to all prophecies. He will anoint the Holy of Holies. How many of those things you think you've been done? Raise, raise them high and proud. I, it, there is no shame in, in getting this wrong, okay? <laughs> this is complicated. Okay, I see some ones. I see some twos. Okay, you ready for the answer? God has done one of these things. He has made an atonement for iniquity. And he did that through the violent outpouring of Christ's blood. 
by punishing Jesus on the cross with a full weight of wrath for what my sins deserved and what for the sins of anyone who accepts Christ as their Savior, who calls on the name of Jesus, confessing that you are a sinner, that you deserve to go to hell for your sins, and confess that Jesus is Lord, that God raised him from the dead, you too will enjoy the joy that comes from having an atonement made for your iniquities. If, however, you have not confessed Jesus as Lord and believed in your heart that God raised him from the dead, the Bible says that you are still dead in your sins and trespasses, that you are living in a state of active rebellion against God. And, and let me tell you, that might be a fun state to live in from time. You, you, might, you probably do enjoy your sin. Before we come to Christ, a lot of people enjoy their sin for a time. But the Bible tells us that you are like a wave driven by the sea, unable to control where that sin is taking you. And it's probable that that sin in this life is going to take you to places you don't want to be in. And it's definite that at the end of time, when you stand before God in his judgment, you will absolutely be taken to a place your sin, by your sin that you do not want to be taken to. And that is eternal punishment in hell. As for these other five points, I want you to think about this. Has God completed every prophecy that he gave to Israel yet? No, no, there's still quite a few prophecies. Uh, Paul goes over this yet. Uh, Paul goes over this uh, in Romans. He, he specifically talks about what advantage then is, is being a Jew. Like, have we, has God abandoned us? And the answer is no, 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 no. God has not abandoned the Jews. God made specific promises to them, and he will complete those promises. In fact, uh, this is the first reason Jesus is referencing the abomination of desolations. Why did Jesus reference the abominations of desolations? Because he's calling to mind, or he's calling to the reader's mind the fact that God has made a promise to Israel, and God is going to keep that promise. He knows things are about to be hard, and he wants them to know the promises God made to you, he will keep. As the king over human history, Jesus is reassuring the Jewish readers, and, and all of Christians for that matter, that though the tribulation is going to be extremely bad, especially to those who come to faith in it, or during it, the promises of God are true and trustworthy. However, just because all six things at the beginning of this prophecy haven't been accomplished, the Jewish reader would have understood that the rest of the prophecy had been partially fulfilled at this point. I mean, we read about some of it already in Daniel 11, didn't we? When Antiochus came into Jerusalem and committed the abomination of desolation. We, we know that at least that part's been fulfilled, or a portion of that part has been fulfilled. But there's more that's been fulfilled. Uh, he, and Jesus wants the readers to have understanding about when the end is going to take place. He said, look, there's, there's these promises that God made. I want y'all to understand when God is going to fulfill those promises. And we see that Jesus, when he turns the reader's eyes back to this prophecy, he wants them to think about the way God has split these 70 weeks into three unique groupings of weeks. And this is found in verses 25 and 27. In verse 25, God first identifies when the 70-week time period is going to start. Like if I just say, hey, you know, something's going to happen, and an hour later, I'm going to take you to Chuck E. Cheese. Uh, my son is going to know when do I start counting the hour? Was it 55 minutes ago? I'm pretty sure it was 55 minutes ago, Dad. 
No. <laughs> I, will, I will tell you when to start counting the hour. God's doing the same thing. He said, I've told you about 70 weeks. Now let me tell you when the 70 weeks begins. And the beginning of the 70-week time period is from the moment the order went out to rebuild Jerusalem. And from that moment, God says in verse 25, it would take seven weeks to actually restore and rebuild Jerusalem with plaza and moat. And what that means is it's going to be a proper city. This isn't going to be a pile of rubble that people gather around, which is basically what they were doing in Jerusalem at this time. Some people were still there. Jerusalem was destroyed, and they're just sitting around it. He says, no, this is going to be a proper city. It's going to have streets. It's going to have a plaza. It's going to have defenses. This will be Jerusalem restored and rebuilt. And it's going to be built up in seven weeks. Now, seven weeks, remember, a week is equal to seven years. So how many years are we talking about? Who does math? What do you think? 49. Exactly. Good job. 49 years, according to the Hebrew calendar. And the Jewish readers would have known that this part had been fulfilled. I mean, they were living in Jerusalem right now. This part had obviously been fulfilled. But we can see this actually happen in Scripture. We see the command given in Nehemiah chapter 2. Nehemiah chapter 2 tells us that he's serving the king, and the king says, Nehemiah, why are you so sad? And Nehemiah tells him it's because Jerusalem lies in ruins. And God moves the heart of king, uh, this is king Ataxerxes, uh, I wish uh, Ian was here, uh, he tells King Art that, or King Art tells Nehemiah, go and rebuild Jerusalem. And this is a command that he gave in about 444 BC. And 49 years later, by the Hebrew calendar, Jerusalem was indeed rebuilt. God then identifies a second grouping of these weeks in verse 25. He says, from the time that Jerusalem is finished being rebuilt until the time of the coming of Messiah the Prince, there's going to be 62 more weeks. And though there might be some math in here that can go, oh, I know the answer to that right away. Let me just tell you. The answer is 434 years by the Hebrew calendar. So from the time King Art gives the command to rebuild, to rebuild Jerusalem until the coming of Jesus riding into Jerusalem, it would have been seven weeks, then 62 more weeks for a total of 69 weeks, which is a total of 483 years by the Hebrew calendar. Now, why, why do I keep saying that? By the Hebrew calendar, by the Hebrew calendar. What, what's the importance here? You know, Will? close. You're, you're on the right, uh, right path. He said, because it revolves around the number seven, or their system revolves around seven, or ours revolves around ten. You, you got the right thinking, but not quite. There's something specific about it. Does anyone know? Let, let me ask you this. How many days are in our year? Say it loud. I, I know you all know this one. How many days? Nope. Try again. It's not 365. What is it? Yeah, there we go. 365 and about a quarter. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm being pedantic. I just wanted to, to get you guys thinking. 365 days on average, okay? 365 days in a year. In the Hebrew calendar, however, there are 360 days in a year. And the reason this is important is that if I use our Gregorian calendar that uses 365 days in a year, and I say, okay, I know the command from Art went out in the year 444 B.C., 483 years later, according to Daniel chapter 9, God promised 
Messiah would come to Jerusalem, I do the math, and I go, I'm in the year 39 AD. Wait, I've messed up by six years. What happened? Well, what happened is you used our calendar, not the Hebrew calendar. God didn't tell Daniel what the Americans were going to use in the year 2000. That's how I'm telling you you can know the prophecy. That'd be a useless prophecy to Daniel. And yet, there's people today that literally do this and go, well, all these people are wrong about there being a millennial kingdom because you can look at the math and you can, you can see that it doesn't add up. Well, of course it doesn't add up. In the height of narcissism, you're trying to make the prophecy God gave to Daniel, a Hebrew, be given to you instead. The prophecy wasn't given to you. The prophecy was given to Daniel, and we have to interpret it the way that God meant for it to be interpreted by Daniel. And when I use the Hebrew calendar, guess what? I love this so much. God is in control of human history. Exactly 483 years to the date that God had art give that command to rebuild Jerusalem. Jesus the Messiah rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. And I'm not being exaggeratory. In Nehemiah chapter 2, we are told that this all happens in the months of Nisan. And that's probably not how you pronounce it in Hebrew. But in the month of Nisan, I know the car. In the month of Nisan, God tell, or God, we, we're told about this interaction that happens between Art and Nehemiah. And the month of Nisan is when the Passover happens. Exactly 483 Hebrew years later, God comes into Jerusalem. And this is the third reason Jesus is referencing the abomination of desolation. He is declaring himself as Messiah and as the fulfillment of the prophecy that God gave Daniel. And it's possible, it's possible. Now this is Matthew's speculation time, okay? Uh, it's very possible that maybe the disciples made this connection themselves. I mean, they were students of God's word. They had been traveling with Jesus all this time. And maybe they said, wait, we can see that the number of years God promised has come. And here we see in the month of Nisan, just like Nehemiah had an interaction with King Artaxerxes, we can see Jesus is riding into Jerusalem on this donkey like a conquering king. Maybe that's why they were shouting Hosanna. Because they saw this and they saw it as the fulfillment of prophecy. But we're not done yet. And I'll, I'll try to go a little bit quicker here because I know we're running late on time. Uh, God told Daniel that there would be 70 weeks, right? So far, we've gone over 62 plus 7, which is 69. There's a missing week out there. And in verse 27, God tells Daniel that the last week would not start with the Messiah entering Jerusalem. No, God instead says that Messiah is going to be cut off. That then the 60, uh, 69th week, he comes riding into Jerusalem, and then Messiah is cut off by the people of the prince to come. And from history, we know that when it talks about the people, the prince to come, coming to destroy Jerusalem, this was talking about a Roman general named Titus. So we can go back to question two. Hopefully you left space. Who commits the abomination of desolation? You can go and put in General Titus, because he also did this. In the year 70 AD, General Titus comes with his forces to Jerusalem, lays siege, comes in the temple, and declares himself not as a random Roman god, but as the god. And he stops the regular sacrifice and instead has those sacrifices given to him. 
which is, of course, the abomination of desolation. And so what we see happening here is we're told about the people of the prince to come. This isn't the prince to come, and when it's talking about the prince, this isn't Messiah the prince. This is the prince of the people. This is the prince of rebellion. And this happens in the 69th week where the Messiah is cut off, and they destroy the temple in desolations, and then we get a gap. The 69th week stops, and he says, and there's time that passes before we actually get to this final week, the 70th week. And in the 70th week, we're told that it starts with the prince of the people himself, and this is a reference to the Antichrist. The Antichrist comes, and he establishes a firm covenant, we're told, with Israel. But halfway through that week, so if a week is seven years, halfway through the week, we're talking about three and a half years, after establishing it, after establishing the covenant, he breaks that covenant. The Antichrist comes into the temple and commits one final act. That is the abomination of desolation. So under question two, you can also add in the Antichrist. Who commits the abomination of desolation? Antiochus IV, General Titus, and the Antichrist. Those are the three people that we know of for sure. And this is the final reason that Jesus references the abomination of desolation. Jesus is warning the reader that though there have been many who came close to fulfilling this prophecy, none of them fully did it. God has told us this is exactly the set of conditions that must occur for my prophecy to be fulfilled. He says that I am the author of human events, and I'm telling you exactly what has to happen. So just because someone gets close to doing it, it doesn't mean it's fulfilled. It means they are merely a representation of what is to come. And Jesus is giving this final reference because he wants to make sure that we are not deceived. Well, it is my sincere prayer that this in-depth look into what is the abomination of desolation has given you a deeper understanding for the passage that we're going to be going over. Uh, hopefully on, on Wednesday is when we'll do the second part of this. Because I, I want you to understand, when Matthew makes this aside, let the reader understand, if you don't have understanding, you're not going to get the full impact of the, of the message that we're about to read in this passage. Why are we supposed to flee from the hills when we see the abomination of desolation? If you don't even know what the abomination of desolation is, how are you supposed to know when to run? How are you supposed to know what to do? How are you supposed to not be deceived? That's why we spent so much time going over this this morning, and I, I hope that it's equipped you to have a better understanding of the passage that we're going to read. As we wrap things up here, I want to finish our time by reading Isaiah chapter 46, verses 11 through 8. And I want to leave you with just one single point of application before uh, I read that. And the point of application is, since Jesus is the king over all human history, since he's given us these prophecies that comfort us in the midst of trials, as we rest secure in the promises of God, promise, prophecies that give us wisdom in what is to come and when it is to come, prophecies designed to protect us from cheap imitations, from counterfeits and false teachers, this is how we should apply it. Are you personally living a life that is filled with thankfulness towards God for providing for us in this way? 
Have you even submitted your life to God? Have you submitted him to him in the first place? Or are you like Antiochus or General Titus? Or are you like the Antichrist? Are you robbing God of the praise and glory that is rightfully his and giving it to yourself instead? If that's the case, let me leave you with one final warning. Romans 9 warns you that the ultimate end God is going to accomplish with you is that he is raising you up in your rebellion to be an object of his wrath for his glory. Let's read Isaiah 46, verses 8 through 11. It's a passage that God gives proclaiming his authority over all history of mankind. It says, remember this and be assured. Cause it to return to your heart, you transgressors. Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done saying, my counsel will be established, and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. Truly I have spoken, truly I will bring it to pass. I have formed it, surely I will do it. Let us bow in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we marvel at your magnificence. Truly, like David describes, it is mind-boggling that you, the one who has established the end of history from before the world was ever formed, the one who created the universe and all it contains, should look at us and even bother to remember us. And yet it pleases you to elevate us to a position we did not deserve and instead crush your son in our place. Father, I pray that we would be humbled before you, that we would serve you all the days of our life. Lord, I pray that we would take the precious truth you have revealed to us through prophecy as you let us peek into the things yet to come. And instead of being fearful or hoping to use them like a fortune cookie, we would instead turn our eyes to you, the author and perfecter of our faith, and rest secure in the knowledge that you, have sure, that you will surely do all that you have spoken. We love you, Lord. We pray this in Jesus Christ's name, the only name given under heaven by which men must be saved. Amen.